Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Are you looking for a podcast about loving them shrimps? Then you must be thinking of another podcast. Oh. Um, I'm trying to think about how to open this. I guess I'll just say, hello, Robert. Hi, Kelsey. Happy New Year's. Happy New Year's. Uh, I do want to clarify because listeners might be losing their minds right now. This Robert is not the usual Robert. Oh, uh, yes. I'm the other Robert. The other Robert, who I typically call Robbie. So I'm going to call you Robbie if that's cool. That is totally fine. It feels weird to not call you by your internet name because that's how I met you and have known you for like three years. I will not call you Bestly at all, I promise. Okay, I won't call you Fader either. <laughs> so this is my good friend Robbie. We've been playing Overwatch together for forever. Very long time. Roughly three years now. He's been healing my big robot butt. <laughs> it's however long it's been since you've redid your bathroom. That's what I remember from when we met. Yeah, when we first met, I was tearing down the fucking walls of my bathroom. <laughs> Every day, all day. God, I don't miss that project. Ah. I was just thinking about home improvement today because we, like, right before recording this, I was like, let's put the Christmas tree up. It's easy. It's simple because it's New Year's Day and I'm, I'm done with Christmas now. <laughs> it started uh, in November, so you could end it on <laughs> January 1st. Yeah. November 1st to December 31st is Christmas and then I'm done. <laughs> so we were putting up the uh, the Christmas tree and it's such an ordeal. I forget every single year how hard it is to get that stupid thing into the attic because like, so it's in like four chunks, you know, mm-hmm. but like when you put the tree together, it doesn't fit in the bag and the bag doesn't fit in the attic. So we have to like put the bag up in the attic and then individually take each piece of the tree up in there and stuff it in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it so much, so but it's a really pretty oh tree. God. So I don't want to get rid of it. I have always had fake trees. I've never been a, uh, a real tree person. Like yeah. I don't understand going to like kneel in a muddy field to chop down a tree that's going to die in like two weeks and I know. drop needles all over your house. It's like it's stuck in your socks. It doesn't sound like a good time. Yes. Yes. No, thank you. No, thank you. I heard this really cool service. I forget where it is, but they like, they're a Christmas tree farm and like you get the tree for however long you have it. And then when you're done with it, you take it back to the farm, they replant it, and then you get the same tree back next year. What? It's so sustainable. I know. And then they, um, the tree, whenever it reaches seven feet tall, they're like, okay, the tree is retired now. And then they go plant it in an actual forest. Oh, isn't that cute? That's wholesome. I know. What if, what if you have like really high ceilings? that when you want a big tree yeah then you're shit out of luck i guess <laughs> oh man it's like a tree rental service it's like christmas tree uber until it's seven feet tall and then <laughs> it just goes and becomes a telephone pole somewhere yeah basically oh that's so wholesome i love that so how are you doing today i am stupendous i am hanging out and relaxing over my new years and avoiding all of the work that i should possibly be doing it's a f- new it's- fucking year can you believe it we are out of 2020 finally yes that's the best part i'm so excited Ugh. i was reading this really old um t.s Eliot quote which is like last year's words belong to last year's language and next year's words await a new voice wow and it's such like a 
a holistic sort of thing of like, ah, oh, thinking of like the new horizons and adding, you know, a new language and a new interpretation to, you know, what has been a really shitty 2020 and what will come in the, the future of 2021. Maybe that's like really aspirational and philosophical, but yeah, I like that. Oh, I like just posted it on Facebook right, right before we started. So it's fresh in my mind. It's 2021. We're doing a new language. Now we're all speaking French. <laughs> <laughs> We're all speaking how to be like not racist and fuck Donald Trump. Yes. <laughs> Speak it into existence. God, I can't wait. It's like 19 days until you leave days. the White House. Oh my God. That was my thought when I woke up this morning. Yes. <laughs> so what are you looking forward to most in 2021? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, a big question. God, I, would love to, I would love to graduate and finish my PhD finally after yeah. five years. God, you've been um, at it forever. I know. Gosh, it's been so long. I would like to have a real job. Um, but in terms of like fun things that I want to do, assuming... I mean, everything is assuming that COVID will eventually stop and people will get vaccinated. Um, I want to take a trip to Alaska. It's Ooh. one of two states that I haven't visited. You've only not visited um, two states? Yes. What? That one and Hawaii. Oh, my God. I know. All lower 48 have been checked off the list. I'm so jealous. <laughs> I know. I'm so I'm so excited. I want to I wanna go to Alaska. I'm, like, envisioning my Instagram post of me in front of the sign. <laughs> like, you know, 49 out of 50. <laughs> Man, I was just And eventually I'd like to go to Hawaii too, but you know. I was just thinking like whenever we get vaccinated, the first place I want to go is somewhere tropical. Like I want to go to Hawaii or something. Oh my god, that would be so amazing. Yeah, you're so close too cuz you're like in Texas. You can just like fly direct probably. Can you? I don't know. Flying from the north, you can't. I feel like you probably have to fly to California first cuz isn't Hawaii like super far away? It's like deceptively far away, but it's like the the equivalent of like a European flight basically. A European flights. And I'm pretty sure they leave out of like the south and the west of the United States. So just out of curiosity, I'm gonna Google Hawaii flights now. <laughs> I'm actually so curious. Hawaii um flight time from Dallas. Oh god, seven hours fifty one minutes. See, that's not bad. I guess not. I mean, that's roughly how long the flight was, I think, to Ireland. So yeah, that's like I said, it's like the equivalent. Yeah, you can fly directly from Dallas. That's wild. I, I didn't think that. I, I told you. <laughs> I study transportation. This is what I do for a living: is just think about ways that people move. That's true, man. From a hundred and seven dollars. Oh my god, it's so cheap. You say a hundred and seven dollars? Yes. From Texas, it's six hundred and fifteen. Well, I don't. Well, maybe it's just what kayak pulled up. God, I want to. I want to go. I'm not going to get on a plane anytime soon, but that, that sounds like such a good time. If you do, fly Delta. Not open flying Spirit. Middle, open middle seats. Oh, God, prison class. I don't think Spirit even flies to Hawaii. Southwest just started. I love Southwest. They're hopped out in Dallas. Oh, yeah. Such a great company. But they also don't have metal seats anymore. Really? Is it because of COVID? Or Wait, sorry, sorry, sorry. Southwest just started seating people in the middle. Wow. After the new year, I think. I've been like keeping track of this because, you know, I study transportation. Like this right. is what I think about all day is like how people move. Yeah. There's a few companies that still maintain social distancing on planes like Delta and like Alaska Airlines. And then there's others that have done it in the past, like Southwest that have just stopped or American Airlines that stopped a while ago. Yeah. I've got a friend who works for um, American Airlines. He does like uh, ticket sales over the phone and stuff. Oh, that's fun. And he was saying that they had to close down our DFW airport for like 12 hours to like uncovid it. They had to come in and like oh, clean yeah. everything. Oh my God. I saw that. I can't imagine the airport closing for 12 hours. Like that must have been chaos. You have no idea. I should show you this thing that I saw online. I have friends who are like pilots. Ooh. Someone took a picture of what the airspace around texas looked like when the dfw center closed because they also closed the atc center so like the air traffic yeah 
And when air traffic closes, it has like this huge, like, you know, hundreds of mile jurisdiction in like all directions, north, south, east and west. Yeah. And so there's just this like dot in the middle of Texas where like all the planes are just going around. Oh, my God. Um, And it's like totally crazy. I can't find it on Instagram, though. I didn't even think about that. Like they closed the actual air traffic controller. They did. Yeah. Wow. That's they closed the ATC center. That's wild. It's unbelievable. Maybe I can get it and share it for your listeners. Yeah. I'd, we'd like to post that to Instagram if you can find it. I mean, this is the fun stuff that I study for. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to crack open this here beverage because I'm getting thirsty. The LaCroix time. Are you drinking a LaCroix or are you having some other? I am drinking a LaCroix. It's a limoncello. Naturally essenced. Ooh. I have um, passion fruit today. Uh-huh. I'm not usually a passion fruit person, but they were all out of pample mousse. Oh, man. And so this is what I had to deal with was to get a the passion fruit off brand. I do love the passion fruit one, though. I'm, I'm warming up to it. I've been a, I've been a, uh, a pample mousse stand for a very long time. <laughs> um, but now I am, you know, warming up to other brands. Yeah. Or other types. Also lime. I don't know about lime. It's so basic. Yeah, but like key lime is too, uh, you get like the Skittles flavor too yes. much. And like lime is just, it's just so refreshing. I used to be a huge Coke person. So I'm so glad to just drink anything carbonated. <laughs> yeah, same actually. I used to be like a Diet Coke fiend. Oh, yeah. When I was younger and played a bunch more video games, I would eat so many Cokes in a day. Just like, you like eat them? five or three. Or sorry, <laughs> drink just them. Fucking pounding down that tinfoil. <laughs> <laughs> Crushing it. Um, So talk to me more about your degree. We don't actually ever talk a whole lot about what it is that you do. (laughs) Yeah, we only ever talk about like internet stuff and hockey. Right. Um, Yeah, so I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, I research and have lived in Detroit for my whole life. And I study all forms of public transportation. And my degree is in uh, urban and regional planning. So I study transportation infrastructure, transportation history. Uh, I focus on on buses and trains and public transportation forms that like move people around cities. But I also have like a side hobby in air travel. So I'm, you know, we were just talking about Hawaii and flights to Hawaii. Yeah. Um, so I study like random airlines and I follow news about what new airliners are coming out and who's serving what areas, because these are all like fundamental ways that like humans travel within like whatever geographic spaces that they're in, whether those geographic spaces are like continent to continent, you know, transatlantic travel or whether those geographic spaces are like, you know, within your city or across the country or on interstates. Yeah. It's essentially all like wrapped up into my one big degree about, you know, how and why people move and where they move and how they've moved historically throughout time. So have you been looking into just out of curiosity, the um, like how they're distributed the vaccine oh yes because i'm really curious about that actually i I was just in a huge conversation about this so i know that they had like four pilot states where they were trying to figure out how best to distribute it Mm -hmm. so it was rhode island texas tennessee and i think california Mm -hmm. and the only thing that i can think of between those four states they wanted to get like a big state a small state a long state and a tall state A warm state, a cold state. <laughs> yeah, there's a little bit of everything. It's sort of like all different climates. Something borrowed, something blue. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's sort of what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't actually study a lot of like actual logistics, at least not formally. In the past, I've, I've been kind of like an infrastructure manager for 
um, like large scale summer music festivals. So yeah. like coordinating trucking and shipping and logistics schedules for like multiple contractors and vendors to like descend with all of their, you know, 40 semi trucks worth of equipment of sound, lights, staging, and all this stuff into like one tiny area. But I haven't. That like, sounds like so much fun. It is a huge Excel puzzle and I love it. I'm the most organized yeah. person. It's great. You know, so I was looking at the like the news that came out over the past like three or so days about like why the vaccine distribution rollout has been like so unbelievably crazy and it's just so fascinating like there's so many very unique problems posed by like the nature of the mrna vaccine for how it has to be stored at a super cold temperature yeah it's like what negative 70 celsius or something stupid like that yeah so they're like shipped in these individual packages which are sealed dry ice containers that can't be opened and they have like a time limit once the dry ice is put in and closed and that time limit includes the time of like the truck out of the factory to the shipping distribution center for like UPS uh, or FedEx. And then the shipping distribution center ships it to their central hub, usually in Kentucky, and then flies it out from there. And then it has to go like a secondary route to, uh, you know, via another truck to whatever hospital or location. So they're basically just like throwing these vaccines onto moving vehicles at the speed of light. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure there's like much more security about, you know, I mean, all the all the packages are tracked. The, the temperatures are calculated to make sure that none of the vaccines reach above the acceptable, you know, temperature of the safety of the dose. Yeah. But I mean, you can just imagine in the past when the the Obama administration was rolling out the H1N1 vaccine for swine flu. I don't know if you like remember this back in like 2008 or 2009 or whatever. A while ago. Like the federal government was able to use like large distribution sites of like fairgrounds and things and just tell everyone like, please, everyone come and just line up and just get a shot in your arm. Yeah. But with the nature of the mRNA vaccine being like a two dose shot that has to be kept at a certain temperature, you only get X number of doses. Each individual site has to track how many doses they give out and and plan their future dose allocation for like when those people are going to come back in 21 days for their future shot. Yeah, that's so wild. And then you have to figure in too the people that are going to get the first shot, but then they fall off before the second shot. Yeah. And people who think that like, I don't need the second shot or like the first shot is what gives me my vaccine or it's been a huge problem in the gay community where a bunch of like gay doctors and nurses got their vaccines before Christmas and have gone apparently to Puerto Vallarta to celebrate New Year's together. Oh no. And it's like, oh my God, it's, 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 you know, not the best model. You do need both shots to have a full immunity. Yeah, I, that worries me that people are just like getting the first one and then just like it's party time. That's not how this works. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's and it, like the first shot has something like they don't even actually know how much just the first shot has, but approximately like 50% immunity and it takes several days to build up. There was a story over the weekend that came out of a doctor in I think San Francisco who got the shot. He got the shot on like the 18th, but developed symptoms over Christmas. Oh, no. And it's like, well, the first shot doesn't give you full immunity. The first shot begins to build your immunity. It's really that second shot 21 days after. Yeah. The second shot is also what poses all of those, those like really complex logistical issues because you have to like know that you have that many doses coming for those people in 21 days. Yeah. Otherwise, they miss their shot and they don't have the immunity. Yeah. Man. There's so much that goes into that stuff. And the other other consideration is the additional like guidelines from the CDC with the with the vaccine groupings, you know, A, B, C, and then two. Yeah. Or like one A, one B, one C, and two about which priority group yeah. do you fall in with the desire to vaccinate like frontline workers, healthcare professionals, teachers, and people that perform essential services, uh, long care living assisted facilities, etc. Before doing, you know, just everyone else like you and me. Right. So, and you know, how do you how do you 
classify all those people and notify them if they fill in that category. It's really like a thing of self-identification that's being left up to all the states. So it's just yeah, it's and wild. You are a teacher, right? So oh. you don't fall into the the vaccine people that like are able to go get one because you teach. This is complicated. <laughs> I was I was literally just explaining this to a friend. The CDC has defined it as like teachers, but certain states are interpreting that to mean like K through 12 teachers because K through 12 teachers tend to be teaching at least in some capacity in person or hybrid instruction. Yeah. And I think a lot of uh, state officials see kind of like the effects on the economy of having like forced childcare, like kids having to stay home because schools are closed and parents having to stay home to take care of them Yes, as like a burden. So they're trying to get schools back up and running as like the first possible place of kind of like a childcare repository. And so there's states that are classifying teachers as only K through 12. So like Michigan <laughs> does this where like, I was like, I'm a teacher. I would like my vaccine. And they're like, no, you're in group two. Like you have to wait till the end. Dang. Uh, but other states are like, yes, you're, you, you're a university teacher. Like, please come get vaccinated. I, I would um, think that so, like, I know the childcare is important, but aren't children like less susceptible to get COVID. So you would think that they would want to vaccinate the adult teachers who are teaching people that are, you know, high risk because there's there's university students who are, you know, in their 60s. Yeah. So yeah. And there are university professors that are in their 70s and 80s. Yeah. So they're all high risk. Like it's crazy. Exactly. But I think the, the, the sort of like understood point about that is like, you know, younger teachers don't necessarily need to get the vaccine early because it's better to prioritize the high risk groups of people who are, you know, 60 to 80 in the range yeah. who may be university professors of that age. But those are the professors coincidentally. And I know from my personal experience who are like, I would rather just not teach this year because yeah. I don't know how to use zoom or something like trying to teach my colleagues how to run an online class when they've like barely managed their email for the past 10 years is incredibly difficult. God, that sounds stressful. I can, I can only imagine. But I mean, I think we take this for granted as like people of a relatively younger generation who have grown up with technology or the shifts in technology because we've gradually adapted. Yeah. And, and we haven't really had it like thrust upon us as like, this is the way it's going to be. Right. And I think that's a really big change in like how education is actually being like delivered now is the possibility of like, oh, maybe, maybe you can work remotely and you can, you know, sign in and not have to necessarily show up at the call center and use your yes. And all this other stuff. Yeah, precisely. But, you know, not everyone's ready to just jump into like that level of being able to configure their VPN on their home network and all this other stuff. Yeah, it's just frustrating to see like the disparity in different companies. Like there's so many companies like Richards, my husband, he has been working from home since March and his company is like, okay, new year. It's time to get back to the office. We're going to come <laughs> back in like three weeks. And, like, nothing has changed. It's bad now. It's so much worse than it ever was when we were previously working from home mm-hmm. and working from home has been successful for the company. So why bother to send people back now? Like, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's so frustrating to just see like, I mean, I've worked from home since like before the pandemic. I am a work from home veteran, so I know what's up. <laughs> and the just the company that I work for has seen so much success with work from home and people are thriving with it. I just wish that more companies could see the light in this. Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, you're, you're saving on overhead for the office. You're saving on employees taking unnecessary sick time. Like if you get a flat tire on the way to the office, you are going to be late and you have to use time for that. Mm-hmm. 
you take less vacation when you work from home just because it's easier to get to work? Yeah, I mean, well, part of the like the, the capitalist model of production within our economy is like fundamentally based on the notion of being able to like oversee the work that's being done. Yeah. And I think that that principle involves sort of like this in-person like cubicle or open office style thing where everyone, you know, comes and is productive for eight hours a day. But like that's the definition of the space that we've had you know, going all the way back to like the Industrial Revolution right. in the 1800s and the early 1900s and the start of the automobile and the, the, the assembly line. Like the idea has always been that you go to work and that work is separate from home. And so like one of the weirdest and possibly like most interesting like social cultural things that's happening as a result of the pandemic is that with all of this work from home, it's sort of beginning to redefine the necessity of the workplace. Yeah. If you work in a big tech industry, and, you know, you and all of your coworkers are able to manage and safely, like, navigate private consumer data from a home office connection using VPN and all these other secure methods. What's to say that you can't work? And, like, how much overhead would that save the company if you right. no longer have to have an office and all these, like, spaces and amenities yes. for workers? Yeah. Parking lots, et cetera, There's... et cetera. Do you study parking lots at all? I do. I study a lot. It, it, inevitably, transportation and cars involve the question of parking. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So I parking lots... I don't know. They've always been like a confusing place for me. Like, how do they decide how much space goes into a parking lot? This is a totally like left field question, but this is something that I I think about a lot. (laughs) Um, Usually cities and municipalities have specific zoning codes and requirements for how they build particular developments. So like every city will have certain types of zoning. There's a commercial zone. There's a residential zone. There's sometimes a mixed use zone and stuff like that. And then depending on what type of business you want to open, like say you want to open a coffee shop or a gas station, you would go into the zoning code and find out, you know, the permittable like building size that you have, the amount of setbacks that you need, blah, blah, blah. And then also in like the physical like restraints of that space are like how many parking spaces you need. Like for gas stations, there's a number of parking spaces per pump, for example, in some states. It changes. It's very wild because a lot of municipalities have different requirements. But like big box stores, for example, will have parking requirements that are like scalable to what they think their peak use will be, you know, when everyone's shopping on like Black Friday or something. Which is why when you drive up to like a big box store, like a mall, like a Best Buy or something half the parking lot is empty. Yeah. And it's it's meant to be that way because it's meant to be able to surge to like maximum use, even if it's not ever at that like, you know, average daily use. Yeah, I guess that makes sense that you want to have like the most space that you will need on any given day. But like, at the same time, I feel like there's such a waste of space at most points because you find like, why don't they build some of it underground or create like a, a taller structure? Because that's so much real estate that you're wasting so much like green space opportunity. Oh man, you, <laughs> I don't, I don't even think you know like what you're getting into with parking, but there's, there's <laughs> literally like books about like parking economics that have been written by like very famous scholars. It's, it's really incredible. Like it, and even if you think about like parking, that's on like a city street in front of like a business store. I mean, it's really contentious because the business wants free parking and they want the parking for their customers. So it incentivizes people to roll up to their store, park, walk in, buy something and leave. Yeah. Um, and then that parking space is free for the next person. But if it's if it's paid parking, you know, it incentivizes like different types of driving and different types of consumer behavior, because inherently a question you ask yourself before you go downtown is like, is there going to be parking for me? Or if yes. you're going to like, you know, a, a stars game or something, yeah. you're like, where am I going to park? And that's something that you have to deal with. But 
parking is like the number one massive waste of real of like real estate space in the country. Like if you put every parking space together, it'd be larger than the state of like West Virginia. Oh, that frustrates um, me. That's just that's so much how, concrete. That's how much concrete that we have just like splayed out for people to park their, you know, four by 10 foot vehicle for however long they need to travel into into a business place. But it's it's come to be an expectation that like, if you go to Best Buy, you will have parking. Yeah. If you go downtown to like a cocktail restaurant, there will be parking somewhere, even if it's, a, you know, like a paid structure or a lot. Yeah. But it's almost always subsidized. Like you don't actually pay market rate for the amount of space that your vehicle occupies for however long you park. Yeah. And living in a suburb, like there's not public transportation really around my city because it's too small. Mm -hmm. But there's also like too much parking because they expect it to be bigger. I don't know. Like I live in a frustrating space between not having enough walkability and also not having enough drivability, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. But it's kind of like it goes back to like an old historical argument about like a chicken and an egg for the automobile, which is like, did public transportation like stop, which which gave the rise to the automobile and people wanting to drive everywhere or or did the automobile give rise to the, like the death of public transportation? Yeah. And like, are we building cities for cars or were we building cities like for public transportation just got converted into cars? Like which really came first and what's been driving sort of like consumer choice and building? Because once you start building, you know, a bunch of residential family units that have large lots and yards and everything else that are set apart, you begin to gradually decrease the density. Like you're no longer having like condos, you're not having duplexes or triplexes and stuff like that. Right. And so it becomes like less efficient for a bus or any type of like public transportation service to reach that area because it has to make more stops, travel a larger distance to get the same number of people because it's lower density, which in inherently encourages like automobile driving and like large yeah bill. like you know i have to drive 10 minutes to a grocery store yes 20 minutes to you know a barber etc etc like those aren't walkable times that's it exactly like if i had a grocery store that was within walking distance like i live maybe a mile and a half from the closest grocery store which i could walk there but to get all of my groceries for the week and then walk back carrying like 50 pounds of tofu in my arms that's not going to happen <laughs> so 50 pounds of tofu and everything you need for stroganoff right that's what I need. But it's it, it's totally crazy because I mean and to some extent obviously like climate plays into this and maybe this is different for like me growing up in you know northern Michigan than you in Texas where I'm sure your summers are way different but like I can ride you know a bicycle with a basket on it for most of the year. Yeah. But it's still like a, a 20 minute bike ride to a grocery store through this huge hill by the way like I can't imagine biking up that <laughs> with all the <laughs> My poor little legs with all my groceries. Yeah. Um, I wonder, like, is it is it a change of just, like, American consumerism of, like, how much we buy? Do you need to buy for, like, shorter durations, like, more fresh food that won't go bad or something? Right. Yeah. And then, like, make, like, one trip with the car in bulk to get groceries? Or is, or is you know, that car trip to a grocery store, you know, more efficient because you only go once? And now that we're seeing um, in the pandemic, is it also more efficient to have one person deliver the groceries for multiple people? Yeah. and That's the big question, I guess. <laughs> this is what's so weird about, like, a lot of a lot of thinking around transportation like broadly defined and like why people move or why people take like in transportation we discuss like the trips that people take and why people take specific trips but it changes by like all of these different qualifications that can't necessarily be controlled from any like upper level like the federal government has not planned all these cities even state governments haven't planned cities a lot of cities grew very kind of organically around like tiny industries and right economies and it's this sort of like 
meld of, of both the public and the private that gave rise to a lot of like suburban America, re, like regional, rural, etc. And, you know, your climate plays into it, your grocery store plays into it, your specific job plays into it. Like when you could physically go out, if you're working a night shift, you're not going to, you know, go out during the, or you will go out during the day versus if you're working during the day, do you always want to travel at like eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night? Or you're going to travel only on the weekend, et cetera. Yeah. And so there's so much of like human behavior for transit that's, that's influenced by like your local physical environment or the built environment that's already around you. That's like beyond what we can physically shape anymore. Cause it's, you know, it's set in stone. You have all your suburban houses on your block that have been there since, you know, the seventies or the eighties or whatever, probably earlier even. Huh. Transportation, man, there's so many, like it folds in on itself. It's kind of just a Rubik's cube of moving parts that <laughs> never really make sense to me. <laughs> oh yeah. There's no answer to any of these questions. It's just really fun to think about. And then just like, I don't know, start drinking later on in the day when you're like, well, that was fun. <laughs> so what's your like dream job in your industry? You're getting your doctorate. What do you, what's your, what's your next thing? Oh, I would love to teach. Um, I've always, always, always wanted to be a teacher since uh, I had like early obsessions with history. I wanted to become a history teacher. And then I eventually yeah. decided to become um, a college teacher and my interest in, in like the history of cities kind of like formulated and got really specific into the history of like cities and transit because transit inevitably from all, from all those reasons that I just said for like why transit is so complex is what makes it so interesting. Like so much of a, a city's environment is tied to, you know, the physical built environment of the infrastructure that's around it. Yeah. But I want to be able to teach that to, to college students. Um, it's really common for people to get a PhD and move into teaching professions at a university where you do something like two classes a year, uh, every semester. Yeah. And that's kind of like my dream job. It, it gives my summers to stay open for doing additional research, writing, publishing, whatever, as well as, you know, travel around the country on my motorcycle and continue to see you know those last two states that i'm waiting on yes so so that would be very ideal so you don't have a car have you ever had a car um yes i used to when i was younger i also grew up um i i was raised in detroit but my family moved out to the suburbs yeah and it inevitably was like you need a car weirdly like we grew up in a cul-de-sac oh so like if we had lived outside the cul-de-sac, I would qualify for busing to my school. But because we lived in the cul-de-sac, we were like geographically closer to the school. What? So the physical car distance would have qualified me for the bus. But the actual like distance to the school as the crow flies. Oh, my God. Did not qualify me for the bus. So I had to have a car growing up. Okay. And now I just load all my groceries in my motorcycle. Yeah. That, how does <laughs> all my bags. Do you just have like little side saddles? How does that work? I have little side yeah, saddle bags and one big backpack. That's cute. I love that. I'm, I'm very capable and resilient. And, you know, I live with a roommate who owns a car and that's delightful to go on like joint grocery trips. Yeah, that's always good. So you've been teaching for how many years now? Uh, my first time teaching was in 2012 when I did my student teaching in uh, Detroit Public School. Dang. When I thought I was still going to be a high school teacher. Oh, man. You wanted to be a high school teacher when you like first started? Yeah, I wanted to be a high school history teacher. And then I eventually was like, actually, I think I want to teach college so I can swear and like write my own syllabi. <laughs> high schoolers are so rude. That's like perhaps the last thing I would ever want to teach. <laughs> I mean, or, I, or middle schoolers. Middle schoolers are the worst. I think it would be so fascinating. But the problem with like public school curricula, and I don't know if this is true necessarily in like whatever states some of your your listeners are from per se, but like in Michigan in particular, we have very little control over our actual 
like curricula of what we have to teach and when we have to teach it in public school. Yeah, that's how it is in Texas too. You get like a specific set of things that you have to teach to the test so that the kids can pass the test. Yeah. I I cannot I cannot abide by that. One, I hate I hate standardized testing. Yes. Um, but also like I teach I mean Having grown up in in Detroit, which was like the largest majority black city in the country and the most segregated region in the country, second most segregated now after Cincinnati, is like unbelievable amounts of like racism and uh, like issues with like black and white populations that are just like taboo topics to bring up in public school education. Like why like racial structures are set up this way, like how racial capitalism functions, how race is a determinant factor in, you know, how cities and regions are built. Literally, yeah, literally everything. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's downplayed in a lot of curriculum and you can't necessarily like bring this up on your, as like on your own volition as a teacher without getting a bunch of parents writing in. Yeah. Oh. The same thing for when I taught issues about like gender and sexuality. Like these are things that like in public school people would like balk at. Yeah. And in, in college, they're just like, yeah, do whatever you want to write a syllabus. Have fun. Man, that, that freedom must be like really liberating to be able to teach whatever you kind of want to. That is exactly what it is. And it's, and, you know, obviously it's not that I'm just like teaching and indoctrinating students into whatever belief. Like I, I do, I think a fair <laughs> job of giving students like both sides of the coin Yeah. about like different structures within society and how they formulate and different people's opinions on those structures. But it, you know, it's done at like a high level and like a very classy way Yeah. to like prevent any type of, you know, just like pure discrimination about like how these systems actually function or like, yeah. you know, I'm not just teaching students only one side of the history. Like, I think that would actually be more of a disservice. Yeah. But that that complexity is inherently involved at the college level. Right. Yeah. Like as a person who works at a bank and in the banking industry in general, like we have to be so cognizant of just the systemic racism that has been present within the industry since it began. Oh, And I yeah. think that a lot of companies were not thinking about that, but with the death of George Floyd last year and just everything that has happened within the last like 12 months or so, just the last shitty year, <laughs> it's becoming much more prevalent and like in the forefront of everyone's minds. Like, oh no, racism is still like really terrible everywhere. And we need to actively work to fix these things and not just pretend that we're doing our part by following the basic rules of the FDIC, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, there's there's two phenomenal authors that have written on kind of like the economics of the banking industry and and home loans and how those actually like shape generational wealth between families. Yes. Who have found like overwhelmingly that like black families that were excluded from being able to own homes in the 1930s, 40s and 50s because of federal mortgage lending policies through the FHA, through this policies of redlining through this company, this program called Hulk, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, uh-huh. which actually was determining like where banks could grant mortgages yeah. based on the security of those mortgages. You're speaking like, my language that, like, now. Nobody ever wants to talk I'm... banking with me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but all of this is is essentially like proven that like we've we've restricted and limited the participation within society of yes. a huge segment of c- citizens based on the color of their skin. It's and fucking the perceived crazy. It's so like. It, like down at the very bare bones, the mortar in the bricks in this system are just built on shitty ideals and it needs to be fucking broken down and fixed. Yeah. Like not to get all radicalist on here, but fuck capitalism. No, that is, I mean, that is entirely true because yeah. like the system is fundamentally one that's been based on wealth extraction and it's yes. 
So like the most recent class that I've been teaching is this class on the history of Detroit, which is a very like specific localized history of, of Detroit, the automobile, some of our public transportation industry, but also like Detroit's transition to being, you know, from being a majority white city that that built, you know, the arsenal of democracy, producing more planes in a day that Germany could produce in a month. God. To, you know, the majority black city that people think of when they're like, oh, the bankruptcy from, you know, 2013 or 2014. Yeah. Like, how did it, in the Flint water crisis, which inevitably gets roped into Detroit, even though it's obviously a city that's north of us. But it's, it, it involves these, like, inherently, like, racist ideals and histories of cities. And, you know, the big question is, like, why? Like, how did this actually happen? Yes. Um, and it's, you know, a process of, like, generational wealth extraction and fear of the other. Yeah. I mean, preventing black families from owning homes, white families being like super hostile. I mean, mortgage lenders refusing to give homes to black families. Yeah. Some uh, real estate agents like using black mothers, pushing um, like a baby carriage down a white street to to, like make residents think that their neighborhood was about to integrate so that they would short sell. And then the the realtors would like turn and flip the properties at like twice their value to black families because there were no homes that black families could own. It's a it's an insanely like predatory process, and it it involves like all of these different like capital machinations from numerous actors. And it's just it's unbelievably sad. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, to to your point, like one, it's it's really weird to say George Floyd last year because I, I guess know. it's twenty one now. But I mean. You're right. Like, this has sort of, like, sparked a reckoning or a realization that, like, you know, just because we had a Black president doesn't mean that these issues of racism in our society are fundamentally gone. Yes. Like, everyone was like, oh, Obama's here. Now everything is cured. Like, everyone, everything's fine. We all like Black people now. And no, nobody has ever discriminated against them ever. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you, you ever encounter this in your work specifically, but I'm, I'm actually, like, slightly curious in, like, your banking lingo how or like what's your perception of like changes to fico scores are going to be relative to COVID? like if you have all of this debt that you took on as a result of COVID and your score goes down yeah and you don't have the ability to to pump your score back up like are you ever going to qualify for a home mortgage if you're someone of like a lower income status i think fico fico as a system itself is just it's designed to bump up the people who are doing well and to push down the people who are not because like if you get a loan with a high interest rate that you can't pay back like you're only ever going to be able to get loans with high interest rates because of your fico score or you won't qualify at all and then you just can't you know get anywhere in life if you can't get a car loan you can't get a home loan you can't get a business loan for your small upstart that you want to do Mm -hmm. whereas like someone like me of middle class income my fico score has been improving in covid because i'm not like going out spending money on a trip to hawaii for for instance so (laughs) yet yet (laughs) one day but yeah i i think that it's it's one of those things where it's designed to help the people that don't need help. Yeah. I mean, that, but that's so interesting because like there's, there's sort of like a secondary system that exists like outside of FICO and outside of traditional like mortgage lending for, for like low income families who predominantly tend to be minority. But I mean, this also includes obviously like low income white families that like basically exploits people and uses exorbitantly high interest rates because they don't qualify for like a typical bank interest. So this is like the loan shark sort of like payday loan sort of thing. I fucking hate payday loans. God. 
but it's it's, it's the so, worst. It's so unbelievable it's, with like no financial literacy yes. how this like preys upon a particular population. Right, like you can have a payday loan, sure, get your thousand dollars, but you have to pay back twenty five percent by next week, and then by the time your paycheck rolls in, you're already spending it on like the things that you were supposed to need, like groceries and your mortgage, for example. Yeah. And well, this is what kills me about the stimulus, this like stimulus debate. God. I literally, we got our stimulus checks today and I paid the mortgage today, so they're gone. <laughs> <Bye>. <laughs> it barely touched my bank account, just like skimmed the surface as it left. But what's so, what's so wild, I mean, I can't, I, I have so many numbers like bouncing around in my head at all times. So, I mean, you might have to fact check this, but there's something like 40% of Americans can't cover an unexpected $600 expense. <clears throat> this is Kelsey from the future, and nearly 40% of Americans would struggle to cover an unexpected $400 expense, according to a new report by the Federal Reserve as of May 23rd, 2019. And now I will let you get back to the regularly scheduled conversation. Like they don't have $600 in liquid cash assets to, to devote to dropping in a right. new water pump to their car or a new set of tires or something, if something goes catastrophically wrong. Yeah. Like, no liquid cash to, to deal with an emergency expense of that nature. Yeah. And, like, that's that's $600. Like, thinking that there are some people that are, like, racking up COVID bills of, like, several thousand dollars right. being on ventilators and all this other stuff. Medical debt that you're never, ever going to be able to pay back in your entire life, no matter how hard you try. Yeah. I mean, one of the, like, huge drivers of my interest in wanting to teach is, like, my view of teaching as, like, uh, an equalizing tool yeah. for equity within society. Like, to give people the tools to essentially better themselves you know, identify different characteristics in life, the world, et cetera, analyze, be a critical thinker, whatever. And what's what's just really stunning to me is like this interest in equity has driven me to like study poverty, has driven me to study race and like all through the lens of infrastructure and transportation. But like we have such a bad poverty policy in our country. Like this is not a handout. This is not $600 to people who don't need $600. Like this is $600 to people that have been out of work, have their jobs closed, had their hours cut. And it's half of what they gave us when the pandemic was not even like a quarter as bad back at the beginning yeah. of the year. And other countries are doing it monthly, literally monthly. And one stupid motherfucker, one rich white man was like, it could be $2,000, but actually, no, it's not going to be. That frustrates me to no end. Like they have the money to give everybody $2,000. But to do that would make the rich people like a fraction less rich. And that is what killed it, essentially. Yeah. There's this uh, woman in, I can't remember where she, I think she's somewhere in the Northeast, like Boston, uh, named Heather Cox Richardson, who started writing this like daily letter, like letters from an American sort of thing. Hmm. And she just did a really interesting one about kind of like the end of 2020 as the culmination of the Reagan years of like austerity and the, the, the like the belief that the free market is just going to take care of everyone. Right. The way that she constructed the narrative in such like a boiled down way, she's a, she's a professor, by the way, of, of something in boss i think she's a professor of art history but just analyzes like culture and society cool yeah the way that she distilled it was just like so precise where she's like we have just like constructed the idea that these are handouts and that this is bad for the economy because we are inherently based around this idea of production and if we're paying people they're not being productive yeah and so that this is like antithetical to capitalism and to our economy but i mean we see the opposite like poor people who receive a $600 or $2,000 or $1,200 stimulus check will instantly spend that money and that cash will be moved through the system much more rapidly than it will be giving 
you know, a tax cut to someone like Jeff Bezos or you know, Bill Gates yes, or like other corporations that don't pay any income taxes. That capital is not moving through the system. Right. Like, granted, they're paying their workers, but like they're still not paying their workers a living wage. Like yeah. how many Walmart employees actually are still on some type of like social assistance, like food stamps? It's an enormously high amount that's being subsidized by the public system. Yeah. And so many people have like two or three jobs just to support a family. It doesn't make sense. It's an unbelievable amount of like fundamental inequality and how the system is structured. Yeah. But I don't know. This is really weird because this isn't like, this isn't truly what I do for a living. Like I study cities and and transportation, but it inherently like runs into these issues of like equity within society and how these structures of inequality have been formulated. Right. Basically throughout history. Like what I teach in my Detroit class is like a a hyper-focused look at like just how Detroit inequality got started. Yeah as kind of um, like a parallel to what could be seen in like other U.S. cities or other Rust Belt cities in particular. Yeah, man, <laughs> it's all interwoven, isn't it? Everything is connected at, uh, at the basics. But that's what's so unbelievably fascinating about it. Like that's the complexity that I just love to, to dive into and think about and discuss. That's your bread and butter. Oh, it really is. It's so much fun. Like this is the best part of teaching college courses is when you have like a discussion class of like 30 students. One of my students the other day just wrote me a beautiful email to thanking me for my teaching this past semester in, yeah. in COVID and over Zoom and all this other stuff. But like when, when you're able to give people the tools to really see how things click, and, and begin to put pieces together themselves and add up all these components that may not necessarily like tie in, like how does equity deal with transit and how does transit deal with race? Um, but being able to like put all that into like and construct a narrative of understanding for oneself yeah. is an enormously like powerful tool that I like truly, truly, truly hope will one day like lead to a better society, which is like going back to that T.S. Eliot quote, like last year's words are for last year's voices and next year's words await a new voice. Yeah. That's so beautiful. Hopefully that new voice is the, is the younger generation coming up to save us all from our backwards ways. This is all the great memes of the of the Zoomers. <laughs> well, <laughs> Those TikTok dances. Yeah, TikTok dances. That's, that's the next generation's words. I did not fill that out on my bingo square. That's the one thing I didn't do in 2020. <laughs> I, I can't learn a TikTok dance. I'm not coordinated enough. I'll elbow myself in the face somehow. <laughs> but you know every chant for Stars games. <laughs> oh yeah you know that by heart whenever COVID is done you have to come down and we can watch a stars game together i would absolutely love that you know i travel so much already as it is so i know like you're currently in new mexico even though you are detroit born and bred because you just have like the ability to move around i'm so that's so cool that you just have the freedom to like be like i want to go live in new mexico for a couple of months and then you just go do it because you teach online yeah i mean this well like i said with with the sort of like shifts of like where people work and using the sort of like online platforms to their fullest extent means that i can teach a class remotely of all of my students who are based in detroit and i can teach it from pretty much anywhere in the world as long as the time zones line up and i'm not waking up at like 3 a.m yeah and you know this goes this goes both ways like i have colleagues in my phd program who have moved back to their home countries during COVID and have to log on for meetings literally at like 1 a.m in the morning or like six or seven because they're not scheduled like efficiently yeah which raises the questions of like should public institutions like universities be concerned about scheduling if they have international students who are logging in from like india or korea or china if those students are back there like taking classes from abroad but i mean for me it's been like a 
you know, a sort of like blessing in disguise of COVID is that I've been able, I mean, I was able to travel over the summer and just sort of like take my laptop and answer my emails on the road. And now I'm hiding in the, the mountains of New Mexico with very low COVID cases and I'm able to teach my class remotely. And yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to think that like, this could be almost any industry, like you could possibly do this for banking if you want to continue to, you know, work from home whilst on a trip to to Baltimore or Calgary or something, you can just, yeah. you know, tether your, your laptop in the car, right. log into your VPN and answer some emails. <laughs> That's true, actually. I could go anywhere. I mean, the sky, it, in theory, like the sky's the limit with this. But it, I mean, obviously, there's questions of logistics and privacy, obviously, like... That's the big thing in the banking industry. I, I know, like, there's HIPAA in, in healthcare and there's FERPA in public education for, like, the, the records privacy yeah. of, like... And, and students. Yeah. Do you guys have something similar for banking that's like... I don't know if there's an acronym for it, um, but yeah, I mean, it's basically just like you you have access to so much stuff. Like I can log in and look at anybody's social security number. So <laughs> just be sure you're not sharing that information and don't go stealing things from people. Like <laughs> I have bank accounts and socials and birthdays. I know, I know everything about all of our customers. So Ugh. it's a dangerous <laughs> industry to work in. But yeah, it's it's it, but it's such an interesting slippery slope because like you can imagine the possibilities of like freeing up a workforce to no longer have to commute like 40 minutes into the center of the city to yeah. go to their, their office building. And like you save people two hours a day of just driving if you do that. Yes. You know, you you save the money and the real estate that you spend on putting your, your workers to work. But I mean, the flip side of that is like if I'm traveling around, you know, on my motorcycle with my laptop that has all of my student names and grades and their performance standards in my class and stuff like that's technically protected federal information. Not that anyone would want that over like something like their social security number, but like you traveling with a laptop of all of that is a little a little different than yeah someone who answers phone calls for i don't know customer service of like amtrak or something yeah so there's always like the the protection of course i have vpn and everything is password protected and i have like 600 passwords within the passwords <laughs> it's everything is very encrypted and safe which is which is nice but yeah yeah it's one of those things where you just have to be careful in public spaces you can't like i can't go work at starbucks you know i can't just set up my laptop and be like i'm gonna work here today yeah oh you'd be like those hr people at work who have those privacy screens that like unless you're staring directly head on you can't see anything yes <laughs> man i remember those from when i would go into my office all the time those are so weird like the first time i saw one i thought somebody was pretending to work on like a computer that was not <laughs> on i was like what are you doing i had one when i worked at a public school i was a i worked as an administrator for like a ged program yeah and i had one for like my desk computer and like i I'm also one of those weird people that like sits in like random positions in my chair. And if I was like too high or too low or like turned too far to the right, you couldn't see. So it's like, ah, oh. I keep like adjusting my monitor just so I could get comfortable for my hours of Excel, right. Excel spreadsheeting. Um, so you said your, your next stop is Baltimore, if I remember right, correct? Yeah, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to stop off in Baltimore for about two months. My sister lives there with her delightful child and her husband. Will you be staying? And they have a farmer's market down the street from oh my them. God. So I will bubble up with them, enjoy some delicious food, and get some work done. Yes. And teach remotely from Baltimore. <laughs> oh, my God. So if are you going to be like in Baltimore proper? Yeah, I will be up around the Johns Hopkins campus. Okay, so there's this restaurant that I talked about in the last episode. It's called Miss Shirley's Cafe. Ooh. 
you is need to go there you for your birthday with the with yes. the french toast yes uh, the french it down, toast it's down in the inner harbor though yeah it is okay well i can i'll have a car in baltimore so i can travel hell yes go get <laughs> i don't know if I have public transportation during covid those kind of a weird part of the discussion but yeah i happily i love i love brunch i'm gay kelsey brunch is what i do for a living <laughs> yes it's it's the best place you can ever find they have like a perfect lox bagel there it's the mm. it's so good mm. i'm i miss it. it my fucking phone was like hey remember a year ago when you were in baltimore and you had all this good food that you took photos yeah. of and i was like yes i remember phone don't remind me <laughs> those phone reminders are like a blessing and a curse oh, i hate them <laughs> Like, I remember when I had hope for 2020. Right. It was like, look at you a year ago, hanging out in Baltimore at a football game. Oh, God. for my birthday month celebrations. Happy birthday, by yes. the way. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. It's always my birthday. It's always your <laughs> birthday. Everything is happy when you're around. I'm so glad to have met you all those years ago and that our friendship has developed into this I know delightful, all-encompassing internet persona. It's wonderful. Like, I really am very thankful for your friendship and cheers to another year ahead of us another year another decade we can just like knock 2020 off and call 2021 the start of the decade i think yeah i think so too just i was never 30 i just skipped from 29 to 31 yeah i mean seriously just write the year off basically done and dusted that's exactly what it is well i'll be 30 next year so oh my gosh i'll send you cookies to dampen the sadness i absolutely cannot wait i love your cookies they're so good (laughs) Okay, well, are you ready to face this new year with a new language? I am. All right. What is what is what is your language of the new year going to be, Kelsey? Uh, I'm gonna make one up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> You're speaking tongues. To gonna speak in tongues. <laughs> That's my new language. Yeah. So I think my new language is gonna be being a more open person and being my most authentic self. I think that I'm a lot harder on myself than I need to be, and I'm trying to change that. Uh, my new language is like hope and positivity. Maybe that's a bit like optimistic or bubbly, but I I truly believe that. The golden retriever years. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Please tell your friends about us. Help us grow this audience. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. We release weekly every Monday. If you have a second to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, that helps us so, so much. It sure you does. Can find- oh, wait, this is yours. This is me. <laughs> Stepping on my toes. <laughs> You can find us and friend us on social media. We are at YMBTOAP on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. And we are now also on Patreon. We just had a wonderful Patreon party on my Animal Crossing Island. Um, It was for New Year's Eve. It was absolutely fantastic. All the patrons were there. I love you guys so much for coming. Um, If you like what we do and you want us to keep on doing it, please consider supporting us on our Patreon. It is a brand new month, which means we have a brand new video coming out very soon. We're going to be reviewing Avatar The Last Airbender. So buckle in for that one. Um, You can support us there for as little as $2 a month. And if you want to get our videos, you upgrade to the $5 a month membership. You can also email us at yemtopa.gmail.com. We want that listener mail. Send us your questions on transportation. Maybe I'll consult Robbie and get you guys an answer because I have a lot of questions on transportation it's just it's a weird industry and it's fascinating to me there's so many mysteries about it so send in those listener mails our theme song is the Grim Reaper Blows the Horn by Farage please check him out on YouTube and as always thanks for listening and tune in next time to get the answer to that burning question we'll be able to fly to Hawaii in April and how long am I going to have to wait for my COVID logistic vaccine to make its way to whatever's the next <laughs> so many questions so many questions We have
had one more important sound we wanted you to hear. And for the ending there, if you want to start thinking on it, when you say to the next time to get the answer to that burning question, you can just ad lib something at the end, just something we talked about, like why is transportation so racist or <laughs> whatever you want to add on there. <laughs> oh, oh, I might need to think about that. Um, fuck. That's... You can take some time. Oh, when, when will we be able to go to Hawaii? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah.